Thank you very much for being on the show today. Um, we're here with Victor Novaski, author of A Matter of Opinion. He was the editor and um, editor emeritus and publisher of The Nation um, in the past few decades and is now a professor at the Columbia School of Journalism. So you did not start out your career thinking you would be a journalist. Um, you started out studying the law. Is that that's right? Um, why did you make the switch and why did you decide to study the law? Uh, well, first of all, I did start out hoping to be a journalist. I edited my college paper at Swarthmore, the Swarthmore Phoenix. I edited uh, my junior high school paper uh, called Ofni, which was info spelled backwards. Get it? I edited my army paper, the, the 53rd Inf News, which was the, newspa- the newspaper of the... Um, ski troops in Alaska, in Anchorage, Alaska, in the 1950s. And I went to law school on the GI Bill, and I started a magazine in law school called Monocle, which was a magazine of political satire, and we called it a leisurely quarterly of political satire because we came out twice a year. So, um, I I hoped to be a journalist, but I also was interested in politics, and uh, I thought and since I had the GI Bill, this was at the end of the Korean War, I thought I might as well carry on my education because I thought the world could wait another few years to hear what I had to say because I had nothing to say. <laughs> Do you feel like your education in the law has given you an edge in some ways over other journalists or as an editor? I think my education in the law gave me an edge in dealing with lawyers, but not over other journalists. But uh, it, it teaches you the language. It's like studying French, and you learn how to communicate with French people. Um, and I wrote a book uh, about the Kennedy Justice Department, Robert Kennedy's attorney generalship, which meant interviewing lots of lawyers. And um, you learn that they don't know any more than you do, and what you learn, or at least what I learned in law school, at Yale Law School, is how to look it up. So, uh, and when a lawyer tells you you can't do something, you learn that you want to talk to another lawyer who tells you how you can do it. Uh, there are as many different legal theories as there are uh, political theories, and uh, so I was grateful for that education. Um, going back to your early work on student publications in your own uh, magazine, The Monocle, what drew you to satire and sort of irony in writing about current events? Well, uh, we started Monocle in, in the late 1950s, and this was at the end of the McCarthy, so-called McCarthy era. And during the McCarthy years, you know, there was great intimidation throughout the land, and uh, people were afraid to speak out. Professors were uh, fired from their jobs if they didn't cooperate with congressional investigating committees. If you had belonged to the Communist Party in the past, which was a legal party, it you could be blacklisted from employment in Hollywood, in newspapers, in government, in the sciences. Um, you could lose your pension if you had been in the military. And so it was a time of what people have called the great fear and uh, I thought that sat- that satire was one way of criticizing what was going on that could break through this 
blandness and my generation was known as the silent generation so those of us who didn't want to be silent chose that particular form to to speak out in but it turned out that there were others who had the same idea so at about the same time a stand-up comedian named Mort Saul and another one Lenny Bruce who went to jail actually for saying things you're not supposed to say um, uh, were performing and drawing crowds uh, Nichols and May, that's Mike Nichols, who went on to become a famous Hollywood director, and Elaine May had a very funny improvisational comedy act that they started in Chicago, which commented on the news of the day. Uh, there was a fellow named Paul Krasner who started a magazine called The Realist um, that uh, really was an outrageous way of... Um, challenging the assumptions of conventional politics. So it was in the air, and we were, I guess, part of what was in the air. Um, how do you think that the current trend in political comedy, which is more commenting on the media than on politics, but fake news shows such as um, John Stewart's, um, are like or unlike what you were doing and what the others were doing um, at the time? Well, you know, I think the important thing about Jon Stewart is I was at the Democratic Convention in uh, Boston in when they picked John Kerry to be the nominee, and they had a um, panel of all of the television anchors, and people said uh, in at the end of the panel, and all the then anchors, Tom Brokaw, Dan Rather, the late Peter Jennings, uh, Jim Lehrer of the Nightly News Hour. He's the only one that's still on. Judy Woodruff was also on. She's still on the air. And um, in the question period, after the panel list had finished making their own statements, someone said, why is it that young people say they get their news from Jon Stewart? They don't watch the Nightly News. So all of the commentators had the same answer. They said, because young people are too stupid to know the difference between satire and the real thing. <laughs> and and the real, you know, the hard, the hard news. And I'm sitting there thinking, hey, just a minute. The reason people watch Jon Stewart is A, because he's very funny. And B, because he's in the business of exposing hypocrisy so he never says anything he doesn't believe whereas these other anchors have the pretense that they don't have any politics themselves or convictions or beliefs and um, in that respect Stewart and Monocle had the same kind of orientation Monocle's official editorial policy was the views of our contributors no matter how conflicting and contradictory are the views of the editors because we were interested in exposing the hypocrisies of others youth today are often accused of not paying attention to current events as as you suggest do you feel like they pay more or less attention to current events than any time in the past or that just well uh, you know i've never seen a, a serious study that that measures the proportion of people of any age group who are active at any given time One's image is that in the 60s, uh, women were taking off their bras, uh, men were march were turning on, tuning in, and dropping out. Uh, there were these massive protests uh, against the Vietnam War eventually uh, you know, on behalf of desegregation and civil rights in the South. Uh, and it certainly is true that young people fueled both the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement. But whether that was 
a larger percentage of young people than are politically engaged today or not? I don't know. I suspect not. I think the style was different. It was a much more militant, uh, out there, um, in-your-face style. And I think there is a sort of uh, service ethic in young people today that uh, wasn't quite there in the same way back then. So, um, Getting back to your book or to your book, as the case may be, a matter of opinion, um, how... Do you think, sorry, I'm going to have to rephrase that. Um, who do you think the nation, which you were editor of for quite some time, is really written for? Okay. The nation um, has two main constituencies. Um, the one is the people who read journals of opinion as a class. And, you know, other journals of opinion like the New Republic, uh, which is sort of on the vaguely liberal side of the line. The nation is more on the radical liberal side of the line. Or National Review, Bill Buckley's old magazine, which is on the far right side of the line. Or the Weekly Standard, which Rupert Murdoch publishes, which is on the right wing, is, is a right wing magazine. The nation, first of all, is uh, written for people who historically have read these sorts of magazines. There are people who are interested in ideas. There are people whose influence is way disproportionate to their numbers. So they um, they may be the people who write the nightly news. They may be the broadcasters themselves. They may be members of Congress. They may be the people who write the speeches for members of Congress, serve as legislative assistants. They are people who are politically or culturally engaged and interested in ideas. That's one sort of part of them. And for that reason, if you write an article for, say, the Detroit Free Press or the New York Times, um, a lot of people are going to see it. But you may have more impact if you write for one of these smaller magazines. They're read more carefully. Uh, literary agents will call you if you have talent and uh, try to sign you up so that they can sell your next book. So that's one constituency. The other are is is movement activists. And these are the people who, whether they march in the streets or these days, are on the Internet and the web and uh, uh, in cyberspace and, and doing moveon.com or whatever the, the thing is. So those are the two constituencies and they're both very different and then of course i think you you all journalists at some level write for their peers and uh you know they want to be thought that it, they want their peers to think that they know what they're doing and that they do it well <laughs> and seriously so. um when you have two such different constituencies that you're writing for how do you as an editor um, balance those things while still keeping in mind um, one of the themes that you seem to be so interested in, which is the freedom of your writers. Right. Well, um, you know, one of the raps against magazines like The Nation is that they speak to, the, they preach to the choir, or they speak to the converted. So, uh, if you know, if you read The Nation's letters page, you'll see that. If it's true that we speak to the choir, it's the least harmonious choir in the history of choral music. Uh, that our, our readers are always disagreeing with our writers and our writers are always disagreeing with each other. So one of the ways that you uh, speak to different constituencies is that uh, you don't speak to the choir, but you um, 
the magazine is a forum for a set of debates. One of them is is the debates between the radicals and the liberals. Uh, we're not a forum for the debate between the Democrats and the Republicans. You can read the mainstream press for that. You can watch the television networks for that. You can read Time, Newsweek, and uh, U.S. News and World Report for that. Maybe you could read the Michigan Daily for that. I don't know. But uh, the uh, a magazine like this has different – it has debate, but it's different. They are different debates than you'll find in the mass media. For example, our radical feminist writers believe all pornography ought to be banned. And our civil libertarian writers believe nothing ought to be banned. Our bottom-up, bioregionalist, green readers uh, disagree with our top-down, old-left socialist planner uh, readers. Our human rights interventionist writers disagree with our pacifist uh, writers. So these are very interesting issues, and they're, they're, but they're not quite the, the ones that you'll see reflected in the mainstream media. Um, it seems like you have a lot of the disagreements that people are always complaining about on CNN and all those talk shows, but maybe not with the screaming in public, maybe. Well, no. <laughs> or I think, more in public, no, but, but in print. That's a good point. I mean... There is a kind of, um, it's not a movement, but a, uh, trend out there that, and a tendency to dis opinion. And the president of ABC News goes around making a speech he made it at the Columbia Graduate School of Journalism. I heard it. I was in the audience where he says, opinion is bad. It's driving out objectivity. Well, first of all, there's a question about whether there is such a thing as objectivity, but it's for the purposes of argument, assuming that there is. Uh, I still think what we need is more opinion, not less. And the image of opinion that he is uh, both purveying and assuming is what you were referring to before, the shout shows on television, Bill O'Reilly uh, or Rush Limbaugh on radio, uh, which is sort of the opposite of the kind of reasoned argumentation and serious political discourse and uh, moral analysis and interpretive uh, journalism that you find in a magazine like One Hopes, like The Nation. But if your political preference is National Review, then you find in, in National Review. You know. um, while I was reading reviews of this book, what was interesting to me, having read the book all the way through and finding it more... Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the great thing about college right. radio right. interviewers is that they'll actually read your book um, rather than just showing up on the day, at least. But um, it seems that you're more interested in law, reason, arguments, as you said, and the presence of multiple opinions than you are in really standing up um, in terms of what journalism should be like, probably not in your activist or personal life, um, than you are in standing up for the left, um, which is something that in many of the reviews seem to think of you as, in fact, being the left. Um, was that something... Was that an, a factor in you wanting to write this book? And why do you feel the need to, for instance, reach out to some of those right-wing um, publications and try to foster opinion rather than your own opinion? Well, it's a big, a big question, good question. Um, 
I'm not sure I agree with its premise about the book itself, mm-hmm. but uh, but I think there's, there's a number of truth there. Well, first of all, the, what the funniest thing to me in the re- reviews were the reviews in all these right wing magazines said, "Hey, this is a funny book. There's a lot to read in here. This is very smart." The trouble with Navasky is though he doesn't come out and reveal himself to be the dogmatic party line <laughs> Marxist that we all know he really is. Uh, and the only trouble with that analysis is I'm, I don't think I am. You know, that's all. Now, yes, the nation is on the left and I am on the left. That's partly because the country has drifted so far over to the right that anyone who's independent will be thought to be on the left these days. Secondly, it's because, um, you know, since – well, not since the book came out, we but we went into Iraq before the book came out. But since 9-11 and since the Iraq war – um, the administration and uh, some of its supporters in the establishment press have taken the line that if you criticize the government, you're unpatriotic. If you criticize the uh, – if you reveal that the government may be conducting illegal surveillance, as the New York Times did, on hundreds of thousands of Americans, probably unconstitutionally, uh, you're said to be unpatriotic. If you reveal, as the Washington Post did, um, that the we are that this process of rendition of uh, we don't know how many prisoners because the government hasn't shared that information with us to secret prisons in Europe where they may very well be tortured has been going on since uh, since the beginning of our invasion of Iraq. You are said to be uh, jeopardizing national security. All of those things are uh, boxed into you're, you're somehow on the left if you do that. Now, first of all, there's a right a new right wing journal of opinion called the American Conservative, which is against the Iraq War. It, they have different values at the basis of of their uh, their politics, but there have been a series of debates going on within the the left community within the nation itself for the last years, uh, some of which I alluded to earlier. But whereas there used to be consensus 15, 20 years ago, now on a whole range of issues, there are differences of opinion. When Bosnia came up, for example, the question of whether you lift the arms embargo or really you you don't. And I'm, I'm one of those who's still a believer in the United Nations, and I think any of these international problems, whatever you do, ought to be done through the UN. I'm not a pacifist and all that. Now, as far as the book, did I write the book to uh, – either to not make the case that I'm on the left or right. I didn't write the book for any of those reasons. Uh, I wrote the book that's me. And the history of how it came to be written was I really wanted to answer the question for myself of whether these magazines like the one I had spent the last 25 years of my life working for. Before that, I worked for the New York Times, and I talk about that in a matter of opinion, and before that, my satire magazine. But the question that I set out to answer in this uh, book was, are these magazines relics of the 17th and 18th century, or are they a potential counterforce to all of the worst and most degrading trends in journalism today? And I, of course, started out with the hypothesis that they are a counterforce, but nevertheless, I wanted to go over those arguments. When I turned in my – when I finished a draft, the manuscript had changed in between because um, my publisher 
made me an offer I should have refused and sold me the magazine for money I didn't have, and I had to go out and raise a lot of money when I thought I when I had taken some time off to write this book, and so I changed what I was writing from a third-person meditation on these uh, big questions to a first-person misadventure story, and I showed my first draft to my son, who read all three pages and said, oh, I get it, it's a how not to. And I then showed it to my editor, and she was enthusiastic, but she gently nudged me in the direction of chronological coherence, and it became more about me than I had intended. So it's not a memoir in the sense that it talks about my wife and children and all that, but it is a professional. I do use the three periodicals that I have been most engaged in and involved in. I wrote for scores of others, I have to say, but I do use those three as a way of talking about what's happening in journalism today. And yes, I have come to be, in thinking of these magazines, I've come to believe that the, that their ultimate role is, as, as a, a genre, a form of journalism, is to raise the, the level of the political dialogue. And uh, it happens to be my own uh, politics are on the liberal left. But that's uh, – and so that becomes part of the story. But Lenin already wrote the book, What is to be Done? And so I've written a different kind of book. <laughs> um, we were talking a little bit just now about um, some of the infighting in, on the left. Why do you think that there's such a um, perception that the left is fractured and the right is solid – um, if there are new publications on the right sprouting up um, just because they're in power? Well, I think that the, uh, money plays a role in all these things, and the media are increasingly concentrated. And um, I think Bob Kuttner, who is the edit- one of the founding editors of the American Prospect, said that the right-wing is always drifting downstream relative to power, and left-wing is always going upstream, and it's a much harder uh, thing to do. And that um, to the extent that that the right, despite all of this uh, loose talk about the so-called liberal media, which, by the way, nation columnist Eric Alterman wrote a book called What Liberal Media in, in which he went and he looked and he counted and he he came to the conclusion that, you know, the liberals have an a infinitesimal uh, control of the media environment uh, compared to the conservatives and the establishment. And uh, but that uh, if you despite all of the talk of the liberal media, that there really is a domination that uh, has succeeded in caricaturing uh, disagreement on the, on the, the fractured left. Having said that, the left there isn't a left. There are many different lefts. That uh, and there are uh, deep cleavages on the right. Uh, you don't hear as much about them. You will uh, as the Republican presidential race heats up because um, I think there's going to be a scramble, and at that point, there, you already see some of it in the primaries this year, but at that point, it's going to be much clearer. 
How do you feel the role of opinion journals is different, if at all, at a time like this, um, when your journal is maybe on the opposite side of what's popular versus, say, during yeah. the Clinton administration, where maybe it wasn't your dream come true, but it was right. a start? Well, first of all, uh, let me give a business answer, and then I'll give a, a content <laughs> answer. The business answer. For years, we've had a very bad joke. If it's bad for the country, it's good for the nation. So people say, how are you doing today? I say, better than ever, because uh, the country is in a lot of trouble. Um, but the serious implication of that is that when you're really um, – when times are really bad, or and I take it when you invade another country um, on a false premise uh, and then try to rationalize it by saying that you're there to impose democracy, which is to me an oxymoron. You can't impose democracy. It's a contradiction in terms. Uh, when you're in that kind of circumstance, those times, it's as if uh, – all of the rest of the years that you're publishing a magazine like The Nation are a holding action for the time when, when it counts when the press, which someone once called a herd of independent minds, when the press is all backing or the mainstream press is all backing in the run-up to the Iraq war, for example, the mainstream press is all backing the administration. They're sending out its message. They're raising some questions here and there about it, but essentially the your, – the, uh, main theme in the big media and the amplified theme in the country is uh, that we have to go to war to protect us from terrorism and to retaliate against terrorism when, in fact, Iraq had nothing to do with the bombing of the World Trade Center. Uh, that's the time when these magazines can play a special role. And one of the interesting things about subscribers to these magazines is that one tends to think of them because they come out of New York and Washington for the most part, uh, that that's where their influence is greatest. I think their importance is equally great in small towns around the country where they are a lifeline for people who want to know that they're not alone in intuiting that there's something wrong with what they're being told about why we're doing what we're doing as a country. It seems like a lot of other nonprofit um, media outlets, like for instance, this radio station um, on a smaller scale or um, different broadcast media might face some of the same problems, financial problems you were talking about um, as the nation. How do you think your experiences, either as editor or financer, relate to that sort of thing? Well, first of all, the nation is America's oldest weekly magazine. It was founded in 1865, the year the Civil War ended. In the magazine business, Survival is the ultimate test of success, and the nation is as is around where magazines with circulation in the millions life look the Saturday evening post colliers have gone under so by that test it 's the most successful magazine in the weekly magazine <laughs> in the country now uh for years, I'd go around saying the secret of the nation's success is it has lost money for every one of those years, and by that I meant that it's more a cause than a business uh, and that its owners have never uh, put profit ahead of cause. And uh, the the editor of National Review, I have to say, said, I had him speak in my class, uh, we're both in the same business, we're in business to make a point and not a profit. And I, I agree with that. Now, having said that, the difference between the nation and uh, your radio station is the nation is unprofitable, 
but it's not a nonprofit. I should have said not for profit <laughs> making. <laughs> yeah, okay, and it's not a nonprofit because in this country you can't, if you are a nonprofit, you're not supposed to endorse political candidates, which is important to us. You're not supposed to try to influence legislation beyond a certain point, which is important to us. And uh, and we're weekly, and and we're going to be most administrations. Part of our job is to be a journal of dissent and to question the official line. And so most of them are going to be hostile to what we have to say. When the Reagan administration uh, didn't like what Mother Jones magazine was doing, which is a West Coast sort of left liberal uh, New Age-ish magazine, uh, they moved – and Mother Jones is a nonprofit – the Reagan administration moved to take away its nonprofit status. Now, what did that mean? That meant, first of all, the editors and uh, publisher and and the staff of that magazine had to divert vast energies from putting out their magazine into fighting this legal case. Uh, secondly, it meant uh, it it cost hundreds of thousands of dollars to pay in lawyer fees, but also in your own time. Because uh, you've got to prepare affidavits and you've got to do research all the things you wrote and et cetera. Uh, so it's a uh, it's 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 a great diversion, but it also is a dilution of your ability to do your job. Thirdly, um, in addition to the legal costs of carrying on the fight, if you lose, they take away not just the monies you save by having nonprofit mailing rates, which in their case was hundreds of thousands of dollars, but they go after you for every year in the past that you had these lower rates. In Mother Jones's case, they were founded as a nonprofit, so this went back to I, – I forget the exact year they were founded, but it went back 20 years and uh, – so and then they add penalty payments and interest payments on that money. So basically, they'll put you out of business. So for that reason, uh, I've always resisted the nation going nonprofit. Although a lot of other magazines of opinion uh, have a different view, including uh, left-wing magazines like the Progressive, like In These Times, and 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 such. Um, the uh, so. How does that affect your um, what you write? I hope that we don't and uh, moderate what we have to say in order to uh, avoid running afoul of our shareholders. And for that reason, we have a wide base of shareholders. A lot of our subscribers are shareholders. In the, there was a we ran a conference basically an answer to your question. And a woman got up there, Cindy Kling, and she had been the publisher of something called Nuclear Times Magazine, which was organized as a nonprofit. And she said uh, it doesn't exist anymore. And I think one of the reasons is they, she said, when you uh, become a 501c3, which is the the number on the tax code that gets you nonprofit status, your First Amendment rights go out the door because the lawyers tell you you can't do certain things. They want you to, their job is to be safe so that, for example, they told Nuclear Times they couldn't print the voting records of members of Congress on nuclear issues. Well, I think the lawyers were being overly cautious 
That's what they regarded as their job in telling them that. But that they wanted to do that as a service to their readers, to let their readers know where they stood. That's not advocating. That is informing. Nevertheless, it, when, well, when you can't do that and you're trying to put out a paper alerting people to nuclear, the dangers of nuclear war, uh, you probably ought to go out of business. And that was a direct result, in my view, of there being a nonprofit. Now, had they tried to do it as a for-profit, uh, would they have gotten the, uh, the, the capital investment that they needed? I can't say. Um, why do you think it is that market forces, being as they are, most journals of opinion or um, similar publications aren't profitable? It seems like niche publications seem to be doing very well right now. Why, aren't these, this, why isn't this particular niche so popular? Well, let me first speak to the nation. So uh, even though I'm emeritus at the nation and I'm at the Columbia Journalism Review these days, um, but I still go into the nation office all the time and I'm a shareholder. Um, but speak, And speaking for the nation, when I got there in 1978, the nation had a circulation of uh, – a paid circulation of about 20,000. It now has a paid circulation – the last time it was audited of 188,672 – and it's probably up to 200,000 by now. Um, so it's growing. Uh, so it's not true that all of them are not profitable. For the last three years, I had to send a letter of apology to our shareholders. I told them they'd get a tax write-off. Instead, they had to pay <laughs> a pittance in taxes. Um, I can't speak for the others, but I think in that there are two ways that these journals actually can reach the break-even point, and one is when they're in opposition like this, and the second is New Republic during the Kennedy years had a unique insider relationship to the administration. Kennedy's picture was taken holding up the New Republic when he got off Air Force One, and their circulation went way up, and the same thing happened with National Review uh, when Reagan was president. So you can do it inside or you can do it outside, although, again, that's not their primary um, reason for being. So in answer to your question, I went and I found that I thought no one had ever written a book about this issue before and I discovered about halfway through my research that uh, indeed someone had written the history of these magazines and it was uh, unlikely Boswell. Uh, it was Jürgen Habermas, the Frankfurt School philosopher, and I had heard about him in connection with his theories about the public sphere uh, I think they're attacking us from out of space. I hear uh, yeah. static on my earphones, but maybe your your listeners can't hear that. Uh, but anyway, I had I had heard that Jürgen Habermas and uh, knew that he had elaborated these theories of the public sphere, and was interested in that because um, it seemed to me that, as you suggested, the marketplace doesn't uh, doesn't validate these magazines. Most of them lose money, and on the other hand, the opposite of the marketplace, the Ministry of Information and Culture, which they had in Eastern Europe and in totalitarian regimes, uh, that that is the opposite of what these magazines are supposed to be about. So, um, so the market doesn't validate them, and the um, Ministry of Inf Information and Culture which was characteristic of the totalitarian regimes, is the opposite of what these magazines are supposed to be about. So the public sphere that Habermas talked about, it seemed to me, is one of the places to look as to what is their role. And indeed, he, uh, if you read his book, 
uh, it, it turns out the first half of his famous book, The Structural Transformation of the Public Sphere, uh, is devoted to a history of these magazines, which he sort of sees as a house organ of the public sphere. What sort of fundraising efforts did you undertake while editor at The Nation, and were these um, endeavors uncharacteristic of an editor of a publication like that? Well, um, Jim Weinstein, who was the founder of In These Times, which is a socialist, started as a socialist weekly in Chicago and then became a nonprofit, said that when he thought of starting this magazine, uh, he thought he would be an editor and he discovered he was a beggar because he spent all his time <laughs> with his hat out uh, trying to raise money. I, I don't think that's unusual. I think uh, Irwin... Uh, the the editor of the progressive magazine uh switched to a nonprofit he thought he could he could raise money more money that way and uh so there are all kinds of different scams ruses games that people play in order to raise money in the nation's case we've been lucky first of all we stumbled on the idea way down the road of uh doing an annual cruise and uh we had assigned a writer to expose uh, National Reviews were to have fun at the expense of National Reviews cruisers, and he went on it. And then it seemed like such an interesting way to raise money that no one had ever thought of doing it on the left because people on the left don't take cruises. I'd never taken a cruise in my life. Uh, and we decided to put our riders on a ship somewhere called Ship of Fools. And all of a sudden, it turned out that people wanted to go, and it relieved uh, a lot of people on the left who always were interested in taking cruise but never could afford <laughs> it to do it. It gave them and and they're quite they're a lot of fun and uh, they so that's one fundraising technique we use. A second is that people just and this is prob probably because the magazine has been around so long, but a lot of our subscribers send extra money over and above the cost of their subscription. Thirdly, we started a book publishing uh, operation, which we thought would lose money. It makes a little money. Fourthly, we sell T-shirts, we uh, hats, and all that. And then fifthly, we started a um, we sell stock, and uh, because we are a for-profit uh, enterprise. And uh, I tell our potential shareholders we set up a, what we call a circle of a hundred. I ask people, most of them are subscribers, by the way to invest $5,000 a year for three years. And I say, if, if at the end of that time we haven't hit the break-even point, I may come back to you. But even if we have, we may want to raise more capital in order to invest in the magazine so we can pay our writers better, so we can expand, so we can do more direct mail and reach a wider audience. And... Um, that has worked, and one of the kind of funny things we did was we, when you have a partnership, which is what we have, you don't have to give stock certificates, but we decided to ask Ed Corrin, who's one of the world's great cartoonists, who, uh, if you read The New Yorker, you see these little fuzzy creatures, and he's the guy who draws these fuzzy creatures to do a stock certificate for us, so I was able to tell our investors, the value of your shares may go down, but the value of your stock certificate will go up, because Corrin signed each of them individually and numbered them. So we have a lot of different ways that we raise money for the magazine. We have dinners on both coasts. Maybe we should have one in Michigan uh, where we charge a lot of money per plate. And then we let in some people who can't afford it for, for the cost of the meal. So, How do you think the Internet and other um, newer forms of communication have affected your ability to fundraise and to get your message out? to people that might not have been subscribers to begin with or have the money for a cruise? Well, 
You know, I was the editor of The Nation from 1972 to 1995, at which point our publisher sort of turned the magazine over to me. And at that point, I had to raise a lot of money. And uh, we were losing a half million dollars a year. He wanted a million dollars to to for the nation, although none of it down, payable a certain amount every year thereafter at a reasonable interest rate. And uh, so I wrote a prospectus to, to that would go to shareholders with the help of people who knew what they were doing. And the one word that's not in the prospectus is very good prospectus, projecting what our expenses and revenues would be in the years ahead. Uh, the one word that was not in there was Internet or blogosphere mm-hmm. or website, three words, uh, because they didn't exist yet, re- really. I mean, it was in its infancy. Last year, uh, I told you earlier that when we started, we had only 20,000 paying readers. Last year, we got 40,000 paying subscribers who came to the hard copy magazine who came to us over our free website. So whatever way the web affects the content of these magazines, the idea that they're going to put them out of business, it may be true down the road, but at this point, it's a new way, a new source of revenue for us. And uh, in advance of of the Internet, the web, and there are all kinds of issues up now, net neutrality and other things that may change this, but in advance, the prediction was that the Internet basically uh, would put magazines like ours out of business because people would have the ability to organize their own custom-made magazines on the web, press a button from all the blogosphere, blogs, and uh, they could get their own custom-made magazine. Um, it's an, it was a nice theory, but it's worked in the opposite way. And so my basic thought in the uh, on that part of of to answer that part of your question is um, that the analogy is they are less like or the new media are less like talkies were to silent movies, which is that they put them out of business, then the paperback is to the hardcover book, which is it extends the audience for the hardcover book. Um, But in the long run, in the short run also, I think the new media have degraded the old media in the sense that they're not fact-checked and they've speeded up the news cycle. And so so both uh, forms suffer from that. And but in the long run, the ability to have all these links and the have inter uh, this interrelationship and this a very quick um, response and have thousands, hundreds of thousands, and eventually millions of uh, viewers and messages coming back and forth can only be a good thing. Talking about fact checking and um, people creating their own content, there are a lot of projects, sort of co-op projects. Um, one thing that was, I think. Um, worked on by a number of people here at WCBN was the Michigan IMC, which was just people sort of contributing their own news content. And the idea being that all the members of this co-op would work together to check things and fix them up. Do you think there's a place for that, or do you um, not really consider that news? No, I think there's a, a definitely a place for cooperatives of that sort, but also old, old-fashioned cooperatives. And I think that, that you know usually when you talk about government and the media, it's thought that government is the enemy of the media, and I think it's true that uh, in the tradition of the late great I.F. Stone, you have to look at the government with great suspicion. But the fact is there are many ways in which the state 
can help encourage a free media. One is second-class mail, lower postal rates. A second is tax breaks for, for cooperatives, uh, for printing cooperatives, among other things, uh, which could make low-cost printing available to uh, marginal groups, enable them to get out there. And so a third is is the, the tax law to inherited properties. So weekly newspapers, what happens is they're taxed at such a rate that the simple thing for a, uh, a family to do is sell the paper to a chain rather than carry it on, and that should be changed. And there are a whole set of uh, ways that we should ask ourselves, uh, how do you encourage independent voices to be out there, including cooperatives. What advice would you have for budding journalists or publishers of independent magazines or media um, working today from your wide experience at various publications? My wide experience, okay. So you should read. Um, I think it's very important to read as widely as you can, Uh, and not just the nation or a matter of opinion, but uh, all these different publications till you find one that suits your uh, your temperament, your sensibility, your interest. And um, if you want to be a, a writer, editor, publisher, contributor, designer, um, enter at the point of least resistance. Don't, you know, uh, people used to ask, should you go to journalism school? Should you intern? Well, I'm a great believer in internships, and I teach at a journalism school. I didn't go to one myself. I don't think you have to go to journalism school to be a journalist, but uh, it's not going to do you any harm, and uh, in some cases it will do you a lot of good. Uh, should you go to work as a copy boy or a copy girl on a big paper? Sure. Um, as I say, however, you find what interests you and then get in there. And there are arguments for and against big and little uh, news organizations. The, the simple way to state it is that a big one, you will um, – get a profession, highly professionalized experience in a very narrow field, but you'll also get uh, – you'll be alerted to all of the other openings within that news organization. And uh, whereas if you go to work for a small little magazine, you'll get to do everything. And uh, and that's very fulfilling. Um, and uh, so that's not advice but observation because <laughs> it depends on you rather than some one set of advice doesn't apply to all. That's, a, that's fitting advice from someone who's written for journals of opinion. Yes. <laughs> Thank you very much for being on the show. I'm here with Victor Novaski. His new book is A Matter of Opinion, and it was great to have you here. It's good to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. You're listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor's Living Writers Show. That was um, an interview that was recorded last week when Victor Navasky was in town. Um, he and Molly sat down and had the conversation that you just heard. Um, we've got about 13 minutes to go before Free Speech Radio News. Um, today I finished reading Zoe Rice's first novel. It's a chiclet book called Pick Me Up, and I believe I'll be interviewing her um, in time for airing it on next week's show. Other things we have coming up are um, an interview with E. Lockhart um, and possibly Alex McCauley as well. Um, Right now I'm reading a book called How to Kill a Rock Star. 
my best friend sent it to me. I'm not sure, you know, why she ever read it, but, you know, I'm working on it. Um, so yeah, we're going to listen to some music in a few minutes or a few seconds to take us into Free Speech Radio News. Thanks for listening to The Living Writers Show. You can check us out. Um, we have a podcast in iTunes if you want to find like our old broadcasts and whatnot. Food Gathers is Washtenaw County's food rescue and food bank program. Every day throughout the year, we fight hunger where we live. Call us at 761-2796 to find out how you can volunteer, how you can donate money, how you can donate food. Call us at 761-2796 to find out the role you can play in fighting hunger.
Wednesday, July 26, 2006. This is Free Speech Radio News. From KPFK in L.A., I'm Aura Bogado. Rome hosts international diplomats to deal with the conflict in Lebanon now in its 15th day. As the Israeli invasion of the Gaza Strip enters its fifth week, Palestinian groups come together to propose a negotiated solution with Israel. And legal experts say that proposed legislation makes it easier to spy on U.S. citizens. We'll bring you these stories and more after the headlines. I'm Shannon Young with the Free Speech Radio News headlines. The Israeli military suffered their worst losses in Lebanon today, with as many as 13 Israeli soldiers killed during an offensive to take the Lebanese border town of Ben Jabal, a Hezbollah stronghold. Meanwhile, United Nations Secretary General Kofi Annan called for an investigation into the killing of four members of a U.N. force in southern Lebanon on Wednesday. Jackson Ellers has more from Beirut. Lebanese Red Cross officials today brought the burned-out remains of two ambulances hit by Israeli missile fire on Sunday to a hotel in the southern coastal city of Tyr to show proof that Israeli warplanes have indeed been hitting emergency vehicles. More than 400 Lebanese civilians have been killed in the last two weeks with the majority of them coming from villages caught in the heavy bombardment of southern Lebanon. Civilian deaths continued to rise as convoys carrying fleeing refugees have also come under